0: Good morning. It's great to see you this morning. It's great to be with all of you, even those of you who can't be here physically. We miss you. We look forward to seeing you again when you're able to be here. So we are in Daniel chapter 5 today. Daniel 5. If you'll turn there in your Bibles. I just have to confess something to you, and I know I've been here four and a half years by now, so maybe you've figured this out about me, but I am a recovering Nice guy. I was raised to be very polite and not to hurt people's feelings. And you might say, well, that's a good thing, right? Yeah, I like being around nice people. I like being in a church full of nice people. It makes my life a lot less stressful than it otherwise would be. Plenty of pastors would love to trade places with me on that. But I need to say this, and you need to know this, the Bible never commands us to be nice. The Bible commands us to be kind Kindness is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, but niceness is not. So what's the difference? Because we use those two terms interchangeably. Those are synonymous in the way we speak. Kindness is focused on meeting the needs of other people. Kindness is if you're struggling in some area and I know I can help, then I show up, even if it's a sacrifice for me, even if it's out of my way, I show up and I meet your need, uh, whatever it takes. That's kindness. Niceness is, I want you to like me, and so I'm gonna figure out what makes you like me, and I'm gonna do those things. If you need me to laugh at your jokes, I'm gonna laugh at your jokes. If you need me to give you compliments and flatter you, I'm gonna do that. Niceness is about me. It's about you liking me. It's about me not being, feeling like I'm, uh, I'm in trouble or that you're offended with me. Whereas kindness is about you. You see the difference? Now, the two look much the same. It's sort of like gold and fool's gold because they they can often be confused for one another. Kind people and nice people will do a lot of the same things. They will both be very helpful. They'll both be empathetic. They'll both be considerate of the feelings of others and won't intentionally hurt someone's feelings. They'll both be generous at times. The difference comes when it gets hard, when it involves the way people feel about you. You see, if you need to be confronted on something, and we all need to be confronted sometimes. We all need that holy kick in the rear end sometimes. But when you need one of those, a nice person will never do it. Will never confront you about a need for repentance and change because it's too big a risk. Because you could get angry with them. Because you could no longer be their friend. And they won't take that risk, whereas a kind person will. A kind person will say, Hey, I don't like you being mad at me. I don't want to lose your friendship, but I can't live with myself if I know there's something you need to, you need to hear a word of truth that you need to hear. And I refuse to speak it because I'm afraid of what it's going to do to my reputation or how you feel about me. A kind person is courageous. A kind person is bold. So here's my story about this. Years ago, there was a a young couple in the church where I was pastor, and they had a little girl who was three or four years old. And like a lot of kids that age, let's just say almost all kids that age, she was a handful. And they were first-time parents. And when you're a first-time parent, you've never been through this before. And nobody told you it was going to be this hard. And, And you can be at your wit's end when you have a little one who you love, but just won't listen to you, and you can't control it, and it's driving you crazy, and so as a parent, you, you choose various ways to cope, and one of those is humor, and, and so what this couple would do, and we've all been there, uh, they would say things like in the middle of Wednesday night supper, they'd say, hey, anybody want a little girl? Uh, this one, you can get this one cheap, because I'm kind of done with her, and everyone would laugh, because we knew they were joking. We knew they loved their child, but, but Carrie got a burden for this little girl and for these parents, and just thought, you know, I've been there. And I know how frustrating this is. I need to encourage them to affirm their child and not just make these jokes about her. This could, over time, this could build up. I mean, children take things personally. And so she she shared with me that she wanted to have this conversation with the mom, just one-on-one, just the two of them. And I was against this. I did not want this to happen. I was worried for the sake of my wife. Because one thing I know is... We don't want anyone to tell us how to raise our kids, even though we need help, don't we? I mean, we all make mistakes, and we need older and wiser and, and people who've been there before to, to speak into our lives, but we don't want to hear it. And I said, you know, they could get mad. They could leave the church, or worse, they could stay and spread rumors and trouble. Uh, you could make an enemy out of them. This, this could make our lives so much worse. It, it's just so much easier just to, just to let them learn on their own but she had this conversation with this young mother. And you know, the young mom was very gracious in hearing what she had to say, and I think it made an impact and, and made a change in the way they parented their child. Now, that was not a nice thing to do, but it was a very kind thing to do. You see the difference? Now, please hear me when I say this. When I say that we don't need to be nice, I am not saying we should be rude. There are people, probably one out of 10, I've not done any research, but there's a certain lo- number of people who they just don't have that filter that the rest of us have. They just don't have that, that natural inhibition that says, oh, if I say this, if I do this, people are gonna be mad at me. In fact, they they enjoy stirring the pot. They enjoy, uh, they. if somebody's mad at them, they wear it as a badge of honor. And if you're one of those people, I want you to know, God has given you a tremendous gift. He has made you naturally bold. That's something that's hard for the rest of us. But please understand, you can do so much damage with this gift. It can be a, a huge curse to your... Uh, a sermon similar to this where I remember preaching uh, a sermon similar to this where I talked about how niceness is not in the Bible and we've got to get over it and become bold. And afterwards, a friend of mine uh, it, who was in my church at the time came to me and told me that was the best sermon I'd ever preached. And, and boy, I just we as Christians need to get over being so nice and, and we're, we're letting people go to hell because we're nicing them into hell. And... And I I wanted to say, the whole time he's talking, I know he's trying to give me a compliment, but I'm thinking, brother, I wasn't talking to you. Because this was a guy who liked making people mad. I mean, he lived, he thrived on that. And and I wanted to say, buddy, you have the opposite problem. You need to pray for humility. You don't need to pray for more boldness. You got that in spades. You need to pray for humility, because what you're doing is not blessing anybody. (laughs) It's just making people mad. But I didn't say that, you know why? because I'm too nice. So right now we're in a series about Daniel, about the book of Daniel, actually, because we've seen several people be the main character at times. Daniel himself, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Last week, Nebuchadnezzar himself was the main character. And in all these stories, we see that God is forming character qualities in us so that we can make a difference in the world. It is not our job as Christians in a hostile culture like the one we live in now. It's not our job to just hunker down and hold on to what we have. That's our tendency, to say the enemies are out there, the enemies are at the gates, these stained glass windows will hold them off. Let's stick down in here amongst ourselves and hang on to what we got. But if we do that, we're failing the Lord. Our job is to be salt and light. Salt changes things, light changes things. Our job is to make a difference And so we're going to need the things we've talked about in this series, the things God is trying to build into us, things like genuine faith and last week, humility. Remember, as Nebuchadnezzar, a prideful and arrogant man was brought to his knees by the Lord. We need that humility, but today we're going to talk about how we need boldness. Bold people can and must be humble, otherwise they destroy more than they help. Humble people have to be bold, otherwise they're not helping anybody. So that's what we're going to talk about today, and we're starting in chapter five, or we're in chapter five of Daniel. And I have to say, just as a setup for the scripture, a lot of ground has been covered between chapters four and five that Daniel doesn't tell us about. Daniel by this time is in his 80s, we think. There's a new guy on the throne. His name is Belshazzar. Belshazzar is not actually the son of Nebuchadnezzar, although the book of Daniel calls him that. It's sort of shorthand for descendant of what actually happened, if you're interested in this sort of thing. And if you're not, I'm the preacher. You have to listen to me anyway. So uh, what happened was Belshazzar's father was a guy named Nabonidus who assassinated the rightful king and assumed the throne and then married one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters to give his throne legitimacy. So here's Belshazzar, who's not a very good king. He's a pagan like Nebuchadnezzar, but unlike Nebuchadnezzar, he's not, he's not crafty, he's not smart, he's not wise, and his kingdom is struggling. And in fact, they're under invasion at this very moment. The Medes and the Persians, two great people groups of the East, of the Middle East, have allied together, and they have invaded Babylon, and they are winning every battle against the Babylonians, and the empire is about to fall. And so at the beginning of chapter five, guess what Belshazzar is doing? Well, of course, he's throwing a party. Because what else do you do when your kingdom is under threat? Belshazzar is throwing a big party and he's thinking to himself, okay, we're losing every battle. I may lose most of my empire, but I am safe in the city of Babylon. Nobody can invade this city. It hasn't fallen in a thousand years. And since then, Nebuchadnezzar built those mighty walls. And besides all that, we got the Euphrates River around our city. In order to invade our city, you gotta ford the river and the river's huge. Nobody can do, you can't get an army across that river. And so he throws a party but not only does he party, he sends to his, his emissaries and says, go down to the treasury and find the holy vessels that my predecessor Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem when he sacked that city decades ago. And they bring up the holy vessels, the, the goblets and the plates, and they dine on those, and they take their wine in those golden goblets, and they toast the gods of the Babylonians, Bel and Nebo and Ishtar and Marduk, And they praise those gods. And you see what Belshazzar is doing, right? He is is putting out false bravado. And at the same time, he's saying, okay, my final hope is in the gods who defeated the God of Israel. He's under the delusion that because his predecessor conquered Israel, that means his gods are stronger than the one true God. And so he's reminding himself every time he raises that goblet, my gods are strong but he's about to find out differently. And so we pick it up with verse five. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. So I want you to picture the scene is this massive ballroom full of people dressed in their Sunday best. Well, not their Sunday best, but their best. And they're drinking to excess and they're laughing and they're dancing and they're singing and they're basically chasing their blues away when suddenly a silence, a chilling silence starts to spread through the crowd and finally you can hear the only sound that's in that auditorium or that ballroom which is the sound of some sharp instrument making markings on a plaster wall. And as the crowd parts, the king from his throne is able to see what's making the sound. It's a disembodied hand holding some kind of a writing instrument a reed or a stick and writing these letters into the wall letters that in the babylonian tongue are pronounced something like meni meni tekel parson which we're going to find out later what that means these were babylonian words but no one knew what they meant in that order now i want you to listen to daniel's description of Belshazzar's response when he sees this apparition. Verse six. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Not a cool customer in that situation, I guess you could say. Verse seven, the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, why don't they call Daniel? Daniel is no longer in the service of the king of Babylon. He's been fired. He's been laid off. He's been promoted over. And the queen has to come and say to the king, listen, there was a guy back in the old days named Daniel, and he was a man with an extraordinary spirit, the spirit of the holy God in him. And he interpreted things for for your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, and he was never wrong once. So if we can find him, I bet he'll tell you the answer to this riddle. And they find Daniel somewhere in the city, wherever he's staying, wherever he's living, and they bring him before the king. Now, remember, this guy, although we, know, we see him for what he is, a very uh, cowardly king, is still the most powerful man on earth at this moment. And he's Daniel's boss. And yet Daniel is not intimidated. Did you expect him to be? He walks into the presence of this king and first of all says, okay, first of all, I don't want your, your gifts. I don't care about promotions or gold or, or finery. I don't care about being clothed in purple. Secondly, I want you to remember the, the story of your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, and how when he was at his height, at the height of his powers, and so full of himself, the Lord chopped him down like an oak tree and left him to rot until he repented of his sins, until he got right with the Lord until he admitted that God himself and God alone rules. So shouldn't you learn from that? And then he picks it up in verse 20. We'll we'll pick up his words in verse 22. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this that you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and all your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. So I want you to notice Daniel had an assignment from the king. The assignment was come in and interpret these three words that are on the wall. But Daniel doesn't do that, at least not at first. Daniel goes above and beyond his assignment. His assignment was to walk in and say, okay, here's what these three words mean. Goodbye. Good luck with that. But instead, Daniel gives the king a piece of his mind. And it's not a personal thing. It's not Daniel saying, here's what you've done to me. No, he's saying, I want you to understand something. You have been headed down the wrong road since you claimed your kingdom. And you're headed down a road of destruction. And nobody's told you the truth because you're a big, powerful guy, a fat cat on a throne, and nobody ever speaks truth to those kinds of people. But I'm here to tell you, you didn't learn from the mistakes of the guy who previously sat here. And you're about to pay the price for that. Now implied in Daniel's statement is just like Nebuchadnezzar could have avoided his problems if he would have repented, Belshazzar still has a chance. Daniel boldly speaks truth that the king doesn't want to hear, but he speaks it anyway. And then he gets down to, okay, let's talk about these letters on the wall. What do these letters mean? Well, let's talk about it ourselves. And this is a little complicated, so I'm going to try to do my best to explain it. I'm not a linguist. But the word meeni M-E-N-E, means numbered in Babylonian. It's also similar to the word mina, which is a unit of measurement, a unit of, uh, of economics. It, it refers to 60 shekels worth of coins. The second word is tekel, and it means weighed. It's also similar to the word shekel, so that would be one shekel, so we're up to 61. And then the third word is parson, which means divi- to divide. It's the plural of to divide. It's also similar to the term for two half shekels, which is one more, which makes 62 shekels. And it's similar to the word Persia, which this would be a Persian empire. So Daniel says, weighed, numbered, and divided. You, your, your, your days are numbered, Your life and your kingdom have been weighed in the balances of God's judgment and you have been found wanting. And so your kingdom will be divided among the Medes and the Persians and you will be killed and you'll lose everything. And in verse 31, it says, the new king will be a man named Darius the Mede who is 62 years old. So there's a triple meaning to these words. And none of the three meanings are good in the eyes of Belshazzar. All three meanings say to Belshazzar, you'd better change. So what does this guy do? I mean, surely at this, based on everything he's heard, based on seeing a disembodied hand write these words on the wall, based on everything that happened to his predecessor that is well known in the kingdom of Babylon, surely he's going to drop to his knees and say, I repent of my arrogance and pride. I repent of calling on these other gods. I'm going to put those other gods away forever because they're leading me only to destruction. I'm going to issue an edict to the whole city of Babylon that we're going to pray and fast to the God of heaven and ask him to deliver us. That's what he's going to do, right? But no. Belshazzar says, thank you, Daniel. And he continues his drinking. And it's the last mistake of a profoundly incompetent man Because the great Greek historian Herodotus tells us that as this party is going on, something amazing is happening outside. The the Persian general Gubaru has done something unexpected. He's got a team of engineers who somehow found a way to divert the waters of the Euphrates River so that in front of the palace, that mighty river is now only thigh deep. And that army is able to ford it easily and crawl up the sides of the wall and invade the city in the middle of the night and take it without a fight. And Belshazzar loses his head and the Babylonian people lose their empire and it has never been rebuilt. And all of that could have been avoided if the king had listened to the truth. Now, put yourself in the shoes of Daniel. It's very easy for us to say from... 3,000 years in the future, that if we were in that position, we would have told the truth boldly too. But I know myself, and I know I would have been likely to, very tempted to, water down the truth at least enough that I didn't get into trouble. So I could walk away and say, well, I told the king what God told me to say, but what I really told him was a version of the truth that was softened enough that I wouldn't get into trouble. That's my tendency. And I bet it is yours too. We want to soften it, or at least, or or even if not soften it, put it off so that someone else has to tell him the truth. Or, well, he'll find out soon enough. It's not really my place. I'm not God. Let God deal with him. And I say all this to say two things. Number one, I've gotten a lot bolder than I used to be. I've been praying for boldness for a long, long time. One of the things I learned in the process of praying for boldness is when you pray for boldness, you don't just wake up tomorrow with the heart of a lion. You don't just wake up tomorrow feeling like William Wallace in Braveheart, willing to say whatever, no matter what anybody thinks of you. That's not the way it works. Instead, here's how boldness and courage come. When you pray for boldness, God puts you in positions where boldness is required, See, here's what I've learned, and and I'm gonna put this on the screen, we're gonna put this on the screen so you see it. Courage and boldness are earned by consistently choosing to do or say the right thing when it would be easier not to. So if you think you're gonna be the cowardly lion and stroll into the emerald city, and the wizard of oz is just gonna bestow courage on you, it doesn't work that way. You pray for courage and boldness, and God puts you in positions where He needs someone who tells the truth, no matter the cost. And every time you choose to do that, your heart grows bolder. Your courage grows stronger. So that's the first thing I need to say to you. The second thing is probably every single person in this room has someone in their lives who needs to hear the truth. Some of you right now, you already know what I'm talking about because you've got a coworker who you know has an alcohol problem, and no one's talking to him about it. They're just joking about it, but you know you need to say something, because that person is killing themselves slowly, drink after drink. Some of you have people in your lives who are struggling in marriage or in parenting, and you see the problem. You see what's going on. Maybe it's Maybe it's flirtation with someone they're not married to. Maybe it's uh, an angry temper. Maybe it's uh, carelessness with finances or, or just being uh, loose with their lips and saying what's on their mind instead of what needs to be said. You see what's going on and you know they need to hear truth, but you don't want to get involved. Maybe there's people here who are aware of abusive situations, situations of of sexual molestation or or physical abuse, and and your heart breaks for it, and you're you're wishing someone would intervene. Well, it's your job to intervene. Will you lose a friend because you report this? Yes, but it's what you have to do. And all of us, all of us know people who don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And who's going to tell them about the gospel of, of freedom and salvation if it's not you? God placed you in their lives for that very purpose. And you say, well, I'm not a preacher. Guess what? They'd rather listen to somebody they know, somebody who's real, than someone like me behind a pulpit. They're never going to come to church anyway. You need to speak truth into their lives skillfully, wisely, humbly, with kindness and love in your heart. They need to hear the truth from you. And don't wait until all the inhibitions are gone and and all the inconveniences have vanished and it's just easy and they walk up and say, hey, do you have any advice for me? That day's never gonna happen. You have to choose to speak the truth in love. So my hope and my prayer is that some of you right now are making the decision, I'm going to speak the truth today to my friend, to my coworker, to my loved one before the sun goes down. Because if I wait, that's just one more sleepless night where I have to think about this. It's not going to get any easier tomorrow. I'm going to speak the truth prayerfully, humbly, in love. I'm going to speak. And when we do that, there's no guarantee the person will respond the way they should. In fact, many times they won't. There's no guarantee they won't be angry with you. Many times they will. But you will have done the Lord's work And your heart will be so much more bold the next time you have to make that statement or speak that word of truth. See, I've got news for you. We serve Jesus Christ. And Jesus was not nice. And if you're a parent of a young child who just heard me say that, you're going to have to help them understand what I'm saying. Jesus was not nice. Jesus was very kind. He cared for everyone he met, even the people who hated him. He was the kindest person who ever lived. Never once turned down an opportunity to help somebody. But he wasn't nice. People don't crucify nice guys. People don't hate nice guys. Jesus spoke truth to people that they did not want to hear. And the religious authorities took offense to it. And they put him to death. And that was Jesus' whole plan. He told a parable once and said that if there's a a big treasure somewhere being guarded by a big strong guy, you can't just walk up to him and ask politely and expect him to hand his treasure over. That's not the way life works. He says, if you want that treasure, you got to go through the big strong guy. And that means you got to be aggressive. You got to be strong. You got to fight him and beat him. This is not a nice parable, is it? Jesus was saying, Right now, humanity is under the domination of the ultimate strong man, Satan, who guards jealously everything that he thinks is his. And the devil hates nothing more than seeing one of his getting stolen and brought over to the side of righteousness and truth and eternal life. And Jesus said, I'm not going to go to the devil and ask him politely. I am coming aggressively to destroy him. I'm going to knock him down and beat him down until he's gone, until you never have to worry about him again. That's our Savior. And where did he do it? How did he do it? He did it by speaking the truth to the people who could put him to death. And he died in our place so that we could be free. And we can say glory, hallelujah to that, but realize this. One of the reasons he set us free was so we could speak the truth in love and by the power of Jesus Christ, we could be part of watching other people go free as well isn't that a great plan? I know we wish he'd do all the work himself, but isn't it great? Someday we're going to stand before him in heaven, and we're going to rejoice before him, and we're going to look at that person on the other side of the new Jerusalem and say, you know, I'm part of the reason they're here. Hallelujah.